Do you have a story to tell about a terrible medical conversation? I want to hear from you. Please email me at christine at christinemeyermd.com. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Tell Me More. I am just beyond honored and excited for this week's episode. My guest today is Kermit Farmer, who has obviously a medical conversation story to share, but it is the most moving, empowering, just on so many levels, amazing story that I feel like I've heard thus far on this podcast and really honestly in a very, very long time. Kermit, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you. And thank you so much for the opportunity to share. So tell me about your wife and her story. Oh, real quick. She's from South Korea, came to the United States when she was 15 and she didn't have an American name. So when she got to the immigration office, they said, what do you want to be called? And she thought of Wonder Woman and who Linda Carter was. And she goes, you know what? I'm, I'm Linda. She had the wrong spelling at the time. And I'll say it a few times within this, if it's okay. But my wife is, is a, just a badass. There's nothing short of all things badass in who she is wrapped in compassion and warmth and grace, but just tough as nails. And I just, how I felt in love with the attractiveness of how she did everything she did and what she was able to accomplish daily. And then over the course of months and then over the course of years is what I think of when I think of her. So we moved to a place, I met her in Birmingham. She Cancel a few dates with me because basketball was more important than going on a date with a boy due to North Carolina basketball. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are, are you trying to turn me on right now? This is, <laughs> this is beautiful. Wow. So avid sports fan. And we ended up moving to Auburn, Alabama for her to practice her oncology. I was over a NASA affiliate called Challenger Learning Center at the time in Birmingham. And once we got to Auburn, she started to practice and one thing led to another and she ended up being the first specialty doctor hired by the local hospital. And that led to a freestanding cancer center that was 93,000 square feet. Oh my God. And they outgrew it the first year. Oh, and um, wow. yeah. And then my wife got cancer, stomach cancer self-diagnosed early on. And then she had to go through the process of figuring out that her, I'm sure we'll get into it. There, there's just, we had a lot of complications related to what happened after her stomach was removed. And within a 10 month period, we had 11 hospital admissions and she chose hospice and She's also a marathon runner, among all things, and her heart was just so strong. So it was 18 days on hospice at home. I'll stop there for now. 
Hmm. Wow. So let's go back to before the cancer diagnosis. So your wife certainly sounds not just like an amazing doctor, but a go-getter, make things happen. A cancer center is, you know, established. It's obviously successful. As you said, she outgrew 93,000 square feet quickly. Tell me about what your wife's philosophy was with her patients. Were you able to witness some of her interactions with her patients? Daily. (laughs) Yes. I was close to her patients as she was close to her patients. She has a zero box email philosophy. She doesn't come home until our email is, is done. Her time with the patients was a testament to who she was. At her funeral, my son and I spoke. And one of the things I said was she spelled love, T-I-M-E. And I, I spoke to that. 30 to 45 minutes with a patient was not uncommon, but it really took a toll on her. Seeing 18 patients or so a day and cancer is, is a hard thing. It's not only the, the patient, but it's the network or the support group around that patient. And you have so many questions and you have angst and anxiety and you want to leave feeling relaxed and like you're master of your own ship. You're in control of what this is. And everybody wants Dr. Farmer. And she would repeatedly apologize for having her patients wait two hours after her appointment. But, you know, she would get behind early and she would stay behind because she's she's not going to speed up care for one patient to meet the need of another. And because of her relentless pursuit of quality education in her practice, she was able to recruit some dynamic women and each badasses in their own right. And that's what makes me happy more than anything else now is, is some of the women plus Dr. Brandon Johnson, can't forget him, that carry the flag now. So, I mean, my entire life through medicine, training, residency, internship, and now as a, you know, old (laughs) practicing doctor for many years, I have always thought that oncology was one of the most difficult specialties to practice. And I'm sure in ways the most rewarding, but you're having these life or death conversations on the daily. Like for me, I'll have some of those conversations, but they're interspersed with conversations about, oh, your blood pressure is a little high or you really need to exercise more. Was there any lightness to Linda's conversations that you know of? Were there moments of, you know, just sheer joy? That you think helped to drive her? No. <sighs> That's not what I was expecting you to say at all. Really? Her most touching moments was when she cried with her patients. And she did that often. She prayed with her patients. And she did that often. I think some of it is, was being a woman in that women like will get out of the shower and they look at themselves and they talk about all the things they don't like about themselves. And guys, we, we just <laughs> love everything we see in the mirror. We get out of the shower, we drip dry, and we just, you know, she always felt like she wasn't enough and she wanted to do more. And our patients would make requests like, keep me alive until I see my grandbabies born. 
And she took that very personally or keep me alive until Christmas. And my wife started her day with the obituaries and she would cuss. I could hear it in the other room and I knew what that was. And I'm like, woman, stop doing that. You're not helping yourself. She had many success stories, over 9,000 patients. But from her eyes, she didn't focus on all of the successes that she did have. There are so many people that wouldn't be alive. I, I get told all the time that there's so many people that wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for your wife. It's like, you, you are married. You know, they'll say something like, do you know how amazing she is? I'm like, well, do you know how amazing she is? She's a better wife and mother than she is a doctor. And they go, what? I was like, yeah, let me tell you. And, you know, the stories that I could share are long. The thing is, is she's 51 years old and I'm trying to, to reconcile all of this, all that she's done in her life and all that she's been able to do and how that's cut short by, I would say, at least 20 years by a disease that nobody wants. And my wife had the curse of knowledge and she knew what was happening. She knew what was going on. And we were in a tough spot for a long time. And there's a lot of work that I need to do now. If, if you've seen the Broadway show Hamilton, you know, it, it ends with, with his wife telling his story for the yeah. rest of her yeah. Well, I've got a story to tell for the rest of my life. I, mm -hmm. I know why I wake up and I know the impact that she's had. And I have to do enough good work on this earth in order to be able to stay in her basement in heaven. <laughs> so I look like I know where she is. I've, I, I have a lot of work ahead of me to help in health care and patient and doctor education that my wife seeded inside of me. Let's go back. So your wife is practicing. She's doing amazing work. She's taking the time she needs to take with her patients. I can see the whole thing. I can see, you know, the weight of it on her. I can see the grief when she loses a patient. I can see the drive to honor a patient's wishes. I can, I can just see the whole thing. Tell me about when she got sick. So she's going about her day and what happened? Her tummy was a little unsettled and she couldn't eat much. And she thought she had stomach cancer. And I was like, Honey. wait, what? Wait, 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 wait. So, so, you know, I get stomach upset. And the first thing I think is not, I have stomach cancer. I think I ate the wrong thing. I, whatever. So tell me about that. Sure. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You've probably heard mm -hmm. that analogy before, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So to a cancer doctor, everything, I can't say everything looks like a, a cancer, but I would get tension headaches and she's trying to figure out which cancer I have or oh. all the things in life that could happen. She's first trying to rule out cancer. Stomach cancer is, is quite prevalent in Asians. And it is the number two killer of all cancers. It's poorly researched. It's There's not much awareness in the United States because of what not a lot of Americans get it. And she started going through the paces of what her problem could be. And nothing really showed on a on x-ray or on an MRI. And she would get on the MRI table. And then 
go through that process and she'd jump off of it, run over to the screen so she could study the film herself. Oh my God. Mm. And she knows that, that sugars don't appear or you have to have a lot of sugars in an MRI for it to appear. And I was asking questions while she's looking at it and she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. You know, get away. I got, I got work to do here. So what is she saying to you as, you know, obviously in her head, in her mind, this could be stomach cancer. Did she spend time trying to reassure you or make you feel like, don't worry, this is going to be fine? Or was she just, tell me about that. Sure. She's quite the pragmatic realist and goes about her day with being pragmatic. I'll say a little bit on the glass half empty side when it comes to certain things like this. She thought it was cancer early on, and I thought she was crazy. And it wasn't until it got, it got down to one of two things of what it could be. And I knew it was the, the other, you know. Which was what? An ulcer uh, or something? It wasn't a stomach ulcer. Esophageal, something related to acid reflux. Oh, maybe Barrett's esophagus or something. Yeah. Okay. Um, And I really wasn't even that concerned still because I just thought it was, I couldn't fathom it. You know, you you, you got a a woman that runs marathons and half marathons over 17 in her life, 110 pounds soaking wet. And able to still function at a high level, I'm I'm just not there with her. And she got a call from the surgeon who was running some tests for her in Birmingham because obviously she knows everybody that's that she needs to know. And they said, "Hey, we we need to redo this test again." And it was at that time I got concerned because that's what you do. They were hoping it was a false negative, and it wasn't. She got the news at work. She came home that day which she doesn't do. And she got out of the car and she looked at me and she said, I'm not afraid to die. Wait, that's the first thing she said after getting the diagnosis of cancer? After getting her diagnosis of stomach cancer, yes. You you have a 2% chance of living after a diagnosis and over a two-year period. Okay. So it's... There's most people think of cancer as a death sentence, and it's not. It's it's truly not. And you can't compare one cancer to another. Comparison is the thief of joy. In this case, stomach cancer is a death sentence. But it, it was so much worse than that for us because all of the complications that we had. So, so let's talk about that. So she ignorance is bliss sometimes, right? And I, I feel like having hope drive so many of my patients that get these terrible diagnoses. And in the end, you know, the hope is unfounded, but it gets them through, you know, a lot of the difficult road ahead, treatment, surgery, radiation. So, but your wife knows too much to have hope. She knows enough to know that she'll go through the steps, but she's not going to survive this. So, Tell me how you guys have these conversations about what's next. My ego gets in the way at this point. And I'm like, honey, I've, I've never had a, a girlfriend or a person leave me before, right? Like, I, I've, no, no one's ever broke up with me. That's like, and you're not leaving me now. This, this isn't how this story ends. We're going to get through this. 
And my resolve and vigor for that was un, really unfazed until she wanted to, to do hospice. She's a person of stats and loves it in basketball, loves it in medicine. She knows she's one hell of a fighter and she is, and she was, but she's also a blasted realist that gets in the way of, of my thinking. And the whole thing was just hard. So, so what was the first thing that she had to do? Was it surgery first? Upon diagnosis, she went over across the hall to Dr. Brandon Johnson and nobody in the office knew what was going on. And she walked in and in a very <laughs> Linda Lee Farmer way, she said, Brandon, I have cancer. I have stomach cancer. I need to take off the day. I want you to be my doctor and I'm going to be getting medicine local. I'm going to be treated local. I need to go home today. And that's what she did in, in kind of deadpan sort of way. And so that informed her practice where she was and that started everything in the motion and everybody else was kind of blindsided by, by the whole thing. And it's hard for her to get out of the way being a cancer doctor, but she was trying to make recommendations for herself. And I'm trying to get Brandon to take the emotional weight of that. And they came up with a regimen of chemotherapy first, chemo first, then surgery, then more chemo. And let's beat the odds. And everything was in our favor to beat the odds. You, you have great care. She's a cancer doctor. Again, quite fit, relentless in all things health because it's who she is. You know, this is during the COVID time. So I'm, I'm wearing a, a Wonder Woman mask, COVID mask, because we, we got this. So that's where it started. So can we talk about your son for a second? So did she, how old was your son when she was diagnosed with cancer? 14. Oh my God. So who, who explained it to him? She did? That was the most beautiful moment of, of, of all of this. And it's not a sadness. She sat my son down on the couch, our son down on the couch, and held his hand. And she gave the cancer talk. And it was just beautiful. The grace and beauty. And I was like, she's given the cancer talk. Of all the things I've seen in her practice and in her medicine and her love, I've never seen the cancer talk. And she was talking about herself and how beautiful God is, how cancer is a disease, but it, it, it doesn't change who you are. It is just something that makes you stronger or makes you full of life once you overcome these things. I, I can't speak with it with the grace and articulates that my wife does. She made my son feel like a million bucks talking about how she has cancer. And I'm over there smiling and crying at the same time. And he cried, obviously. Hard for him. It's hard for just hard to be a teenager first, and especially during COVID and all the things that teens had to go through. And then mom gets sick on top of it. It's, you don't expect it. So she, she's had conversations with you. She's had conversations with your son, with her colleagues, and she's actively involved in the decision making of her care, which on a different level than your average patient, obviously. 
So, and she, this is, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about this too. You said she decided to stay local. I mean, obviously your wife could have gone anywhere in the country, presumably in the world. Why the decision to stay local? Why didn't she go to, I don't know, Sloan Kettering or, you know, MD Anderson or one of those, you know, big name cancer centers? She believed that the cancer center provided pretty world-class care. And why would you go somewhere else if you can get world-class care at home? Right there. Right, right. You know, she looked at any clinical trials happening. And again, it's not well-funded. Stomach cancer is not well-funded. It's not well-supported. If it was something related to the Tatas, she would say, <laughs> there's going to be all types of different options if it's rare or, or what that is. Then there wasn't. And, and she had emotionally made a decision after looking at clinical trials prior to the diagnosis because she was ready and she knew what her plan was and she was sticking to it. So how long from when she was diagnosed to when her first treatment happened? How, how long was that time frame? We probably had about three weeks. Mm, not very long. So tell me about that. So tell me about her, her first round of chemo, that process. First round was the doctor sitting in the infusion chair that we all know in the infusion room, receiving the drugs for an extended period of time that her patients go through. So she blended in with everybody. That's not quite true. That her her team gave her a t-shirt that said, you got this. It was a long sleeve, extra small white shirt with the words in black, you got this across her chest. And then oh, all of the cancer staff had the same shirt. Oh my God. So that, that was quite neat and quite cool. Remind me to tell you a story later about that. You got the shirt. And so she had a reaction to the chemotherapy drug on day one from, and that kind of set the tone for all types of other reactions that she would get. So she didn't tolerate the medicine very well. So we improvised and we had a kind of reduce the treatment and what that was and got ready. It, it made her weaker, uh, but she wouldn't show that, you know, and it, she ended up needing obviously to chop off her hair, which she had 99 problems. Her losing hair wasn't one of them. But we did that together at home. For your viewers, I'm bald. So we were twinsies and we had hats from a friend that said, having bad hair day. And we both wore those hats together at the cancer center. We made the very most and we, we, we had some fun. We, we made light of all things of what we were going to. You know, and, and Linda needed to be a model patient in front of the other patients in that environment. And obviously she she did that. She knocked it out of the park. So the chemo is hard, it's always hard, but she it does not go well for her. She's having reactions. At this point, it's Linda's colleagues that are kind of in charge of her care, right? So were you happy with how things were unfolding? Were there things about her path to care that you thought could have been different, should have been different, maybe would have been different if she hadn't been treated by her colleagues? Or would you say that was the best possible scenario? 
I try not to weigh in on that because it, it just wouldn't help. Mm. She was adamant about staying local. I supported her and her, her decision. Staying local or not wasn't wasn't a decision that I was going to make, and she had already made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I try not to put my energy toward things that would not be fruitful. Got it. So then there's surgery, right? So you you get through the chemo. It's hard. She doesn't tolerate it very well. And then she has to have surgery? Correct. Yes. She chooses her favorite surgeon that has the highest rate of recovery because she can do that. She And it's easy for her. So I call him Dr. Christian out of Birmingham, did the surgery, and it was hard for him. He cried with her prior to doing the surgery because, you know, they've been colleagues for so long helping patients that you just don't see this. So they're expecting about an hour, an hour and a half of stomach removal where we're assuming it's going to be half of the stomach, maybe less, maybe more. And I had to wrap my mind around the fact that you can live without a stomach. A whole stomach is something that also happens. And we had to be prepared for a whole stomach removal and what all the nuances are to that. But you don't really know until you get in because she was so thin and so fit. She didn't have any fatty, nothing fatty showed up on the MRI, which means we just don't know until we get inside. So I'm expecting an hour, an hour, hour and a half surgery, an hour, an hour and a half goes by. Somebody comes and gets me and says, hey, doctor, the surgeon wants to meet you in the side room. I say, great. Go into the side room. And the physicians, you know, the surgeon started talking to me about, okay, here's where we are. And he starts talking to me. And I'm kind of glossed over at about three minutes into the conversation. And he's talking about how everything is stuck together and we got cancer everywhere. And he goes, it's the, the kidney is stuck to the stomach. I've been, and the liver is also stuck and I'm trying to turn over the stomach and blah, blah, blah. And, and then, and then I was like, and then he said, what do you want me to do? And then he talked about something else and he came back to what do you want me to do? And, I was like, what do you want? And then I I remember I've been, this is where I got pointed because he was just talking in general and just very bummed out. That's the best way of saying it. Just, just very depressed. And I said, wait, are are you telling me that you've stepped out of surgery? You've brought me into this room and you want to ask me what other organs needs to come out because the cancer has everything matted on the inside of her, of her stomach cavity. He said, yes, it's not a conversation you could ever forget. And I asked him, okay, let's repeat all this and let's come up with a plan because she had been in there for an hour, an hour and a half. I I thought this was post-surgery. Now I have to make a decision on removing one of her kidneys, some of her liver, some other things. But if the cancer is already spread, if it's metastasized, that's not what my wife would want is for me to to do this to her. and what all that is. So I call my godparents who are in the medical space and they made the best decision 
And it was, hey, let's do what we said we're going to do. Linda can have the surgery. She can make the decision after she wakes up if she wants more to be removed. And by far, that was the best decision. And we didn't know it at the time, but she had retroperitoneal fibrosis. And that's why everything was stuck together, all of her organs. It, it wasn't metastasized cancer. Cancer doctor, surgeon thinks it's cancer. And that's not what it was. But retroperitoneal fibrosis led to other complications that we had. So after surgery, she woke up and she wanted to know everything as soon as her eyes opened. And I'm trying to get ahead. And she wanted to know, you know, the extent of the cancer, how much was removed. I'm wanting to talk about her liver and, and kidneys have both been, both been compromised but I'm trying to wait on the doctor and she doesn't want me to wait. And we go through that journey. We did a lot of biopsies of lymph nodes and of the liver and kidney. All of that came back negative, which we were all shocked. And this is how we diagnosed the retroperitoneal fibrosis. And this is how we came to having some really great news at the end of a really bad two days. Mm. So you're you're basically the one that tells her that the surgery didn't go as expected because everything was matted together and there was this working theory that it was matted together because of stomach cancer that has spread outside of the stomach. Ultimately, that's not true, but still she has stomach cancer and had her stomach been removed during the surgery had he was he able to do that? Very good. Three-fourths of her stomach was removed. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, okay. So she now is recovering from surgery. There has been a plan to do more chemo. Is that what happens next? That's right. We have our lovely stay with the first admission into the hospital in Birmingham. And we go home. We have instructions on what to do with her stomach wound. If you can imagine being slid open from the bottom of your sternum down to your belly button, close, physically going in and removing your stomach. And they just did a lot of work in there, scraping, you know, with retroperitoneal fibrosis. I can't explain how much everything is, is really glued together. And the doctor spent well over an hour trying to scrape organs apart. So the recovery was probably a little bit harder than most. but. We got home. Everything's okay. She's doing everything that she needs to do. I'm hopefully providing the right type of care that I need to, to provide. And she doesn't feel well one night. And she goes to the bathroom. And she's trying to use the restroom. And she screams. And she asked me to come about 2 o'clock in the morning to the restroom. And I was already there. You know, I had helped her get to the bathroom. But she had pus coming from the incision and I just gently pushed on it. And I don't have another word other than it, it exploded open. Oh my God. Um, oh my God. And everything, the suture split and a lot more pus started coming out. And so she had a really bad infection and we didn't know it. We went to Birmingham back to the hospital because the, the surgeon had to see this. So 
we left within 10 minutes, called my son on the way. And that led to the second stay at the hospital. Mm. So that's another complication, infection. She needs antibiotics. Obviously, she can't do chemo because she's not healed and she has this infection. So how much time passes in in dealing with all that? I'm going to say about once we got home, within two weeks, we had the infection. And then once it opened up, it, it never closed again for about four months. We had an open wound to treat every four hours around the clock, trying to get the wound to heal. And we, at this point, we get wound specialists involved and everybody's doing the best they can, but, w- but we, we couldn't keep the site clean or internally complications of, of where we were, were just traumatic. So we had two hospitalizations due to infections due to the retroperitoneal fibrosis. She had her kidneys were, were shutting down and to the point where she had to have dialysis. And the one thing she said is I'm, I'm not doing dialysis. You know, she's, and she wanted to, she knows the hard road with kidneys not functioning properly, plus stomach cancer. So the blood test and work when we were in the hospital for her kidneys kept us in the hospital for a long time. We had to come back for kidneys again. She had liver function issues due to retroperitoneal fibrosis. And all of this, we're, we're not able to get chemotherapy because we can't get to the point of her recovering well enough from the surgery in order for her to get chemo. Ultimately, was she able to get that second round of chemo? No, she wasn't. We were looking at radiation as an option, and she just wasn't a candidate for it. Just not a candidate. When did she make the decision to go on hospice? She made the decision, I'm going to say 10 months in. It was in January 21. But it was in January, and we wrote a, a letter to her patients whenever she was diagnosed. And she wanted to write a le- letter to her patients to say, hey, cancer is fickle, and I'm choosing hospice, and cancer is not a death sentence. And if there's anything that I, can, that I want your audience to know, a lot of people think if, if a cancer doctor can't beat it, then I can't beat it. But every cancer is different. There's 107 different types of cancers, and you can't compare one to another. Cancer is the thing. You're not doing yourself any favors by doing that. Wow. So before the letter to the patients, obviously, she came to you and said, no more. I don't want to go through any more treatment. I want to go on hospice. Or was that just something that you just you both sort of felt together was the next logical step. She's more of a pragmatic than I am. I'm wanting to fight. And in in many ways at this point, she says she can't. Her body won't allow her. There's been so many times where I've been with her and the family wants to fight, but the family shouldn't fight. You feel good as the caregiver to throw everything at it. And say, I did everything that I could, you know, 
I was there. You know, you wait until the last, 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 last minute to say, okay, now's the time. She didn't want to go through any more pain than what she went through. And she knew that there wasn't a, a way out. And in the midst of all this, your wife knows that she's not going to survive this cancer. She's decided to be comfortable, be at home. And in the midst of all that, she's thinking about her patients. She's thinking, I need to communicate to my patients. I need to leave them with a hopeful message. I mean, I have to tell you, as a doctor, the last thing I would be thinking about is my practice and my patients. But it sounds like that was her start to finish, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there's no question. It's she was put on this earth to do exactly what she did and what the optics looks like of her battling this was important how she carried herself how she communicated to others what message she sent in her journey all of it was was important and i just have so much respect for all that she is all that she accomplished and I just wish she had 20 more years of, of a career because she was so blasted, gifted at what she did. And I don't know if, if everybody really finds the thing that fulfills them or they know why they wake up in the morning. And she did. And now I do. But it's a pleasure and it's a, it's a gift to know why you are here on this earth. So let's talk about that part. So you know, Linda goes on hospice. Did she pass at home? She did. And yeah. that's what she wanted. Yes, that's what she wanted. Yeah. And I I now support her in that. There was about a, a six week period after that I was pretty angry. Not not the first month, but after that. I was not prepared for hospice. I got on the horse and I was prepared for every step. And I was proud of myself of how I handled all of the nuances of her journey. I wasn't ready for hospice and I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know, you know, she got down to 61 pounds and she's quite introverted. So, and, and, and all that she is, she just wanted her husband there mm -hmm. <laughs> and the wound treatment and not knowing how blood flows and, you know, that there's so much medicine I don't have in my background. Mm -hmm. um, but changing, you know, the bandage every four hours for, you know, four months, just it took a toll, but it was a whole nother level once organs weren't functioning correctly and the science behind that. So this is so hard for you because did you find that people that were obviously the best intended, well-meaning people who knew and respected your wife? Did you think they took for granted that you knew more than you did or were more prepared than you were as the caregiver? I don't know how to answer that, really. I'm quite fearless and will charge hell with a water pistol. And I sent the message that I got this. When hospice came, it's not something you really want to talk about, but there needs to be more, I would say, a granular conversation. And with Linda... She, you know, she didn't want to go to where her patients passed and she wanted to be at home. And I didn't finish what I was saying earlier, but I, I was mad at her for putting me through that the last 18 days. But as soon as I 
I, you know, I shared it with one person and just cried. And I'm a little biased, but I really think of my wife as a walking saint. And how can you be mad at somebody that was, you know? So once I talked through that, I did release it and I wouldn't change it now. It was just hard. And what it does to my son, the pressure of helping him through that, it's tough. Do you still live in the house where you lost your wife? Absolutely. We're not making any changes until he graduates high school. And then we'll see what happens after high school. So how long has it been since Linda passed? It has been about a year and three months now. So still very new, very raw. But this is the part of your story that I cannot get my head around yet. Almost immediately, you had that moment when you're like, I know what I need to do now. Once she got cancer and we knew she she had a 2% survival rate, how, what I was going to do to honor her for my son and, and for her patients, I care deeply about her patients through their stories, their journey, their, all of that, then than what I can convey and what I can express mm-hmm. and loved Hamilton. And you know, here, here's a woman that tells his story for the rest of her life. And my love for my wife is equal to that, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And I have a background in what I'm going to call NASA logistics mm-hmm. and work for a, a cruise line with all things logistics. I had been a, um, a spouse, a supporting spouse to a cancer doctor, and I knew her plight inside and out as, mm-hmm. as that cancer doctor. And then I saw medicine from the care provider, and mm-hmm. we get it thrown at us. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I could take those three elements of myself, logistics background, care provider, and knowledge of the medical industry through my through the pain points of a doctor mm-hmm. for 19 three quarters years. We're trying mm-hmm. to make it to 20 years. And I felt like I can expand upon patient education through some modern tools that just don't exist today. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to call it a happy place, but when things were the darkest, when my wife was sick, these are the things that I would think about is how to carry that, her legacy forward when, when she was sick. So I was wrapping my mind around what could be done pretty early in her. I would say the moment that I'm in the waiting room talking to the surgeon and I have to make a decision about my wife's future and which organs to remove, I'm like, I'm not prepared for this and I'm prepared for everything. And then all of the decisions that have to be made, you need care providers need so much information in such a short amount of time to make decisions that you have confidence in. And we're so dependent verbally on doctors providing us information to make those decisions. And we need more than just auditory messaging. There's been so much innovation in medicine over the last 20, 25 years, but how we convey and communicate that to patients and to caregivers hasn't changed since the birth of medicine, I'd argue. Mm. 
Mm. And it's, I'm going to call it unacceptable. I agree 100%. You only, in a good setting, if you're a student sitting in a classroom, you only retain about 22% of what you hear. If when you either get a diagnosis or you're getting bad news with, with some type of condition or disease that's changing, you're not in your best mindset to take all the information, especially auditorily. Mm-hmm. And a PDF that's been printed off seven different times that you can hardly read is, right. is not uh, a solution. Yes. And if if we couldn't figure it out, you know, like Humpty Dumpty sitting on the wall that's broken, you know, with 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 every damn tool at our disposal, what does that mean for the layperson? Mm. We, okay. we we fundamentally need to to rethink how we help patients understand where they are, where they're going, give them all the tools and resources so they feel like they're in control. So they feel like they know exactly where, what the strategy is and they have confidence in that strategy and we can do better. So I told you this in our first conversation a few weeks ago, Carmen, I said that if I was in your position and by the way, I am 51 years old. My husband's 52. We've been married 27 years. Our daughter is, our youngest is 15. So there are so many places where I can insert myself in your shoes. We are doctors. We have tools at our disposal. We have connections. We have resources, all of those things. But if I was in your position, I would have pulled the covers up over my head, locked the door and said, go away to the world. The last thing I would be thinking is, how do I make this better for other people? But that's not what you did. It's been a year. And I'm looking at your video behind you and you have like graphs and you have whiteboards and you're... Tell me about what you do now and just how I want to, for me, in a very selfish way, I just want to know how you got to that. Well, my wife has trained me well through 19 and three quarters years. It's, it's not about us. It's about those that we serve. And I don't, Mm. I don't know another way of saying that Mm. I've been trained well (laughs) and you're literally if, making me cry right now. I can't. If, if, well, if, if if I don't have her, I do have her legacy, right? And I, what message am I now going to send to her patients? What message am I going to send to my son? Hell, what message am I going to send to myself? Mm. It's it's easy to give up. I feel like I know too much and have too much of a lo- logistical capacity to not put that to best use. And I, I can't take our life insurance money and just spend it on me or just lock it away. I'm going to spend it on her patients. I'm going to spend it on a lot of other patients. We're, and we're, we're building code right now. It's $70,000 a month I'm spending on code. Mm. Um, to do what? Can you, to, can you distill your vision for this project? Simplify it for me. Because $70,000 yeah. a month on four letters seems like a lot. But what is that code <laughs> translating into? So you ask, what do I do? 
Well, the first thing I, I do is, and, and this is going to sound silly, but I kept saying to myself, hey, Kermit, you got this. You got this. The, the morning after her passing. And I, I put on her extra small T-shirt that said, oh, you got this. Oh, my God. I'm looking at you. You look like you are two times her size. No, I'm about four times. Well, <laughs> truthfully, three times her size. I was three. Well, when, when she passed at 61 pounds and I was almost 300 pounds. Oh, I, my. I put on a that shirt and said, you got this. And I do anything to get an eye roll for my for my wife. I'm antagonistic and she promised me that she would eye roll from heaven and I'm hoping to put a smile on her face in this moment and I'm drinking coffee and then I call one of her best friends and I tell her how much I love my wife and had not told her that I was on what I had done at this moment but I got a knock at the door and I was like I gotta go <laughs> it's like why there's somebody at the door and I'm wearing my wife's clothing right now and <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll fill in the, the dots later. So I ended up taking a picture of myself in that shirt and sending it to all the nurses and thanking them for the shirt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the messaging that we had to do all through the cancer, if you can imagine how many people needed to be updated with every two weeks on where my wife is and they want to know the journey. And she's not over only my wife and a doctor, but she's, I'm going to say, quite the celebrity. So I had, mm. to, I had to fill that role of everybody needs to know where she is, right? So, And with that T-shirt, I just continued that, all the threads that we had, you know, off of social media, of course. But here's where I am. And, and it, I found it to be quite therapeutic. Mm, amazing. So... Pivot again. Let's go back. Uh, that had to get in there. That's a, like. a beautiful story. I'm so glad you did that. That was. You're going to have to send me that picture too. By the way, I need that picture. <laughs> you can have it. If I was in your position, the last thing I would be thinking about is how do I make this process easier for people to come? And you know, you're spending so much money to make it better for people. How so? So tell me about this endeavor that's costing you obscene amounts of money. Tell me what your vision is for it. Tell me what you hope it will do. And tell me how you think that will honor Linda's legacy. Wow. How to unpack that. I don't see it as like an obscene amount of money. I see it as we have a very high spend for something. If it works, it's, it's, it's going to impact a lot of patients. I really think w w we can transform how doctors and patients and caregivers and medical practices connect and communicate in a shorter amount of time to accomplish more. And if we need to spend more money to do that, to get it right, then that's what I feel like needs to be done. And people say, well, what if it doesn't work? Well, you know what? It doesn't work. Or we didn't find the right what's called product market fit. I think a strength of mine is, is I, I'm okay with being vulnerable, okay with trying something. And if it doesn't work, I, I can wear my, my wife's clothing and send a picture around. 
And I, I am, am going to be, in this case, vulnerable, even with our own finances, trying something. What, what, what I can't do is just to sit back and say that that was an amazing ride. And truthfully, if I would have had 100 years with my wife, it would not have been enough. To have 19 and three quarters years and to be, I just turned 51 myself, I, I should be in the most productive time of my entire life as in, in a career standpoint. And I'm going to use the next 10 years to make everything that I think this thing can be a reality. And I'm not going to have, I'm, I, I can very easily say if, if we do, if, if I do burn through a million dollars that I'm not going to have regrets over that. For the caregivers that's lost somebody, we we know how fragile life is and how my time on this planet isn't going to be that long. And money in a bank doesn't do anything for me. And Steve Jobs once said that he, he wanted to poke a hole in the universe. And all of that was for for what? a square or rectangle box that mm. that look at cat videos and argue <laughs> with people on the internet. <laughs> if you're going to accomplish this, something, do something that, that honors those that you love. And my wife loves all things education. Her, her biggest pain point was spending a ton of time with a patient in that clinical setting, knowing that she needed to get to the next patient and she can't find and convey all the things that she needs to in a scientific way, but in a very human way for them to feel like they have the great grasp of all that they need. And my point in all of this is why is it so dependent on the doctor orally giving information? I mean, that's all we had 2,000 years ago, right? There, there's a guy that sat on the side of the mountain and he orally said, hey, let me tell you about how I feel about these things. We have more tools at our disposal today, and we're not incorporating them, and we should be. And some would, would say, hey, well, you know, patients aren't that savvy with technology. And, and we, we, okay, you know what? We've been using that excuse for far too long. And that is my, that was my gut instinct at the time. Let's go back to where you said, you were talking about how Linda, you know, struggled to get information to her patients in a coherent, timely way because she didn't have the tools at her disposal to help her do that. And so to honor her, you have created this software program, right? To do just that. So tell me about the program that you are currently building to make it better for clinicians and patients to share information? Sure. It's, there is a technology piece to it, but it's, it's quite the low-tech tool. It's, it's, it is software, but it doesn't look like software in that it's, it's complicated. It has to be so easy that you, quote, unquote, can't mess this up. And that's the tool that we've, that we've built for medical practices to, to have the ability to pull together any combination of videos, documents, audio files, 
forms that they can create and, and even things like virtual events like Zoom sessions. And you can put any one of those into any combination that you wish to create something called a path. So if you find out you have breast cancer, then maybe the doctor wants to give two videos on what breast cancer is, perhaps an online place for to have like a group support room related to a certain type of breast cancer or stomach cancer, videos of what medicine you're taking and showing that pill that goes down your throat and what that happens inside of you. Or it could be something like infusion, something like an infusion chair and what an infusion room is. You know, anything that we can help aid the understanding so you know what to is to come and what to expect is a very helpful and beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, Let me make sure I'm understanding this right because I'm definitely not techie. So I'm seeing myself as a doctor and I've just told my patient they have, I don't know, I'm not an oncologist, so I won't use cancer. They have heart disease and I need to convey to them that heart disease is very serious. It's the number one killer in our country that there's many steps to treating their heart disease, that they'll need more testing, that they'll need medication, that they'll need lifestyle adjustments. But each one of those little things has about a hundred things in them that I need to convey in probably 17 minutes. So enter your tool. What's it called? It's called CarePass. And it's the, it's, it's a way for medical clinics to create a new type of prescription for their patients. So you, a medical, such as yourself, if, if you're trying to prevent heart disease or somebody has heart disease, you need to be able to create a path related to that very condition. And it needs to be built and conveyed in a way that resonates with them. And this is the important thing. It's not that they hear it and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they leave and then they don't make any dietary change or they don't make any structural change. What you want your patients to do is to be compliant with what the doctor gives you. And what we're finding the best thing is, is you send somebody a patient, what I'm going to call a pre-path through the nurses or through the front office of, hey, this is everything I want you to know about heart disease before you come in talk to me. And I want you to go through these videos and through these documents and through, let's say, the medicine. So when you see that pill being ingested and it breaks up in what it's doing to, let's say, your arteries or whatever that is, hopefully it's going to have a new profound meaning to you. And I got one doctor that's using scare tactics. He's like, Kermit, can I, can I throw in a, a video on what a stroke is, and what happens to your body when it has a stroke, and not only an animated one, but also talking to stroke victims that can't use one side of their body? And I'm like, dude, yeah, you can. And it's like, oh, okay, great. You know, what do you convey to your patients that's meaningful? And it needs to, to be it shared in a way that mirrors or as a part of your philosophy as a doctor, you know? So you're basically curating information 
that can be found. You know, a patient could leave my office and Google and YouTube and Facebook and find 17 million bits and pieces of information, some of it good and a lot of it bad, right? So through your care paths, though, a doctor like me can put together the good information in a very digestible, easy to access way for my patients and direct them to it, right? You're exactly right. Or you're going to push it directly to them. It's a way for you to build content or curate. I like the word that you used. After you curate it, you can disseminate it. You can send it to your patients through a link on their phone, to their email. And then you have documentation of all that they have gone through. So you know if if they're taking the approach of understanding where they are in their journey. So the next time they come into your practice, you know what they know. So you know if you need to start back at square A or in case of if they have cancer, that you know that they're very hungry for information. And you probably know that, that they've been very proactive. But as you know, a lot of times it, it takes time is so limited with your patients that you want to know where they are so you can start on that next thing that they need to know. And a lot of times patients come in with misinformation and you need to get ahead of that, right? This is what I want you to know about X, Y, and Z, right? And in our case, I mean, I, I created a distraction with my wife related to retroperitoneal fibrosis. I'm trying to learn all this stuff on my own and they're, you know, the doctor's having to correct me in that room because he doesn't want me to know that he wants me to know something completely different. And we don't, I'm, I'm, I'm taking up too much time talking about a one-off that I was picking myself on because I knew better than that. And doctors need to get ahead of, ahead of the curb of, people self-diagnosing and Dr. Google and what all of that is. And this tool helps with the misinformation. So it helps set the stage for a really concrete conversation. When you have really concrete engagement with your patient, then they're ready for the 2.0 of that. So you can have another path based on where they are to send them home with. At any point, you can expand on that. We're finding doctor clinics are actually using a path to onboard their patients. It's like, hey, so can I just send the first path and I send the patient form to them and I introduce myself in a video to them? I introduce our clinic, what to expect, my philosophy. I'm like, well, yeah, that's that's beautiful. They get to know you before they step in the door. And we had a 70-year-old. I was looking at it. This is for a local OBGYN. Actually, she's just GYN now because you have reporting on everything and a timestamp for that. And, and her online form, her form that used to be papers, now just the form that, that she created. And it was quite simple. It's 98 questions. And I'm like, dear goodness, why do we need site? It's like, I have to have it. I have to have all of this. I'm like, who's going to fill this out? Everybody is filling it out. And it's taking less than seven minutes. Oh my on average, God. Because what? there's a timestamp. And on the paper form, it, there's four pages on the paper form. And it takes on average 15 to 18 minutes if you arrive for it to be filled out. Then somebody has to transcribe it, you know, into the system. And you can't be seen until it's into the system, 
right? Now it's into the system and they do it themselves. And I was looking and I was like, wait a second, that woman is, you know, I was looking at one of the patients. I was like, she's 71 years old. We just had a 71 year old fill this thing out and she did it in 11 minutes. I had tears when I saw that. And so I called, I'm like, this thing is going to work, right? You get 70 year olds to do this. It's going to work. And she's had a hundred percent success rate with people starting a form and then filling it out. Since then, we've had a, um, somebody over the age of 80 fill it out. And she came in raving about the experience. It's like, oh, I got to know you, doctor. You were so cute when you made that video. You know, and I'm actually, I do too. I've never done a podcast before, but everything I've heard about this, this 80 something year old, I, I want to create a, you know, I want to sit down and speak with her. Oh because my God, it's yes. Confirming that we're on the right track. Well, because, you know, there's so many, we, you know, this podcast is focused a lot on bad conversations in medicine and, you know, bad experiences and how we can do better. But, you know, a lot of the, the medical experience starts and ends without a conversation, right? It's, it's the absence of a conversation that makes people's experiences particularly bad. And the conversations, I, I, all of, all of the doctors I know in, in, in my circle wake up with the intent of doing a good job every day. Nobody wakes up saying, today, I'm not going to talk to my patients. Today, I'm going to give them as little information as possible. Nobody does. It's just a time thing, like you said. So these these care paths allow us to say what we need to say, say what we want to say, be the doctors we want to be in much less time, while also inviting our patients to engage with us, which Everybody knows that an engaged patient is a better patient, is a healthier patient, is a more satisfied patient. It is absolutely brilliant. So there's a care path for onboarding new patients. Like, hey, you know, watch this cute video of Christine introducing the practice and telling you all the housekeeping stuff. And then there's maybe you're coming in to talk about your heart disease. Please work through this path first. So we have a, a baseline to start with. And then you leave my office. We just talked about your upcoming stress test. Please work through this path so you know more about that. I mean, it's brilliant. So have you had a lot of success so far? I haven't had a a doctor tell me no (laughs) since (laughs) we actually began. I know you have a huge heart for for everybody getting their colonoscopy, so I have to give you a plug for that. Yeah. Um, watched your video, and you've done a lot of stuff. I, I created just turning 51. I have not gotten a colonoscopy. So I'm like, I need that. So through my internal medicine doctor who said he was going to be joining, I needed that guy that does that. So I created a path for myself, basically, shared it with the colonoscopy. I was like laying on the bed and we do QR codes and stuff. You know, I'm getting prepped for my colonoscopy and I'm selling the product. (laughs) I was like, Hey, it would be really helpful if I had more information other than a piece of paper about what this is. There's this great lady. Her her name's Christine. She's already done this this thing of day in the life of the colonoscopy. So I put your video in there. And then I, uh, I went through the science of what you need to purchase and buy. There's there's lots of great stuff that doctors can use. It's already out on the, the, the internet. It's not that you have to create your own will. Right. Pull in the right 
resources that's public information, put it into a structure that makes sense to your practice. And the front desk doesn't get as many calls, oh, right? Yeah. You don't have as many questions. And when you have confidence, you really feel like you can move mountains. More importantly than the convenience and the time saved and the information shared, you know, your example about the colonoscopies is so spot on because one of the major barriers for people getting their colonoscopies is a lack of understanding. They're afraid of the prep. They're afraid of the anesthesia. They've heard horror stories. So if we can use paths to share the reality of what the experience is going to be like, and we can dispel some of that misinformation and alleviate some of the fear, then patients will get their colonoscopies and patients won't have their precancerous polyp turn into a cancerous polyp. And then patients won't get colon cancer. I mean, it it's a life-saving tool. That's not an exaggeration. It can absolutely be a life-saving tool for patients. And that will honor my wife if that comes to fruition, just the way you said. And that is the intent and the purpose. Hmm. Unbelievable. If, if we have a better understanding of the why, and that's so hard to convey with, with words only in a very tight window, and maybe you've had a really long day, right? Hmm. So how, how can you go home with your doctor for another hour, an hour and a half of information if it's a really serious thing? So you feel like more engaged with that person. And when you know that your doctor cares, then you care. And I don't know why it happens, but sometimes you feel, if you feel like your doctor doesn't care, then you don't care either. Oh, and you, no, it's true. I don't get that. In and of itself, that's, it is what it is. We're going to put the physicians in a position where the patients know that the doctor cares. You're, we're not going to tell you about our love. You're going to feel our love with how that we're able to pull all of these this content and, and stuff together. And it actually makes much less light work for the clinic itself. All of this is really built with the office manager in, in mind. If the office manager ain't happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> I, I absolutely will vouch for that. One Shout out to Clary, who really is the boss in my practice. And if she can't get it done, it's not happening. So amazing. Your story, I mean, I could talk to you for an entire day. Your story is so moving, so special. Like I said in the intro, just so empowering that you're, you're harnessing your grief and your experience with your wife and your love for her and your devotion to her into something that will help thousands, if not more patients. And, and honestly, I'm excited as a doctor. I want this for me. A FYI, I desperately want, absolutely. I am Would like, you like to say yes to the dress and become I, a client of CarePass? Yes. I, listen, yes. It's for, for everybody listening, I have just, I have just said yes to, you know, this amazing, amazing thing. I would be so honored to be your, to be a guinea pig, to be a test pilot, to be whatever. I mean, you, this is the kind of thing that I dream about. And, and, and you may have seen this, or I think we even talked about how like in my practice, like we do all these little things to try to create this better experience for a patient. But it's like these tiny little pieces that take forever to knit together. It, it's just 
so fragmented. Like my intentions are good. I spent a lot of time coming up with ideas, you know, but this is such a cohesive way. It's like taking all those little pieces and weaving them together in a much more meaningful and scalable way. It's just brilliant. I 100% want in. We're going to have a separate conversation about that. But do you have any parting words for patients, for doctors that you want to leave them with? I'll say two things. In life, I think we need to try, and then we need to try harder. And then after we try harder, we need to try harder. And that is for personal development, for personal health, for loving other people, for overcoming adversity. If we're not trying, then what are we doing? We're never static on the side of a mountain. We're either climbing to get in, into a better, better position or we're sliding down into a worse situation. And I would say God loves us too much for us not to, to give it our all, whatever that means. You know, if, if you can't walk, if you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl, keep moving forward. To all the caregivers out there or those that's lost somebody, really for those that's lost somebody, if I'd like to, to convey that there is no escalator to healing and that you have to take the stairs. And, and this is what I, I tell myself is you have to go through that journey. And for me, it's serving my wife. And it's, and it's actually, I, I know what I'm supposed to do. And I, I think a lot of times people don't know what they're supposed to do, but it's just going to take time. Lastly, I wrote a LinkedIn post some time ago, actually the day that my wife, the one year anniversary of my, losing my wife, of where we are with this audacious idea of improving the future of, of patient education is what I call it. I got a, you know, a lot of views and a lot of traction with that. And somebody said, hey, you got to do this podcast. I know somebody, Christine. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if it's me or not. But they <laughs> sent me like your website of, of your practice. And I'm looking at all these awards that your practice has won. And I literally said, I wish I had a like a video of me looking at it. I went, sweet, Jesus. <laughs> and I was like, How in, in the world are they, are they the, the successful? And then I went to look mm -hmm. at the team and I said out, out loud, that explains it. And I keep scrolling and I keep scrolling. And there's all these women out there for your audience. Okay. And I coined this term some time ago. D do you know why Rome was not built in one day? Because a woman wasn't in charge. <laughs> Women can multitask in a way that I will never have the capacity. And I wish my wife was actually leading this my effort now because it would have been so much further along than where I am. And, and just how I can – it's not so much a woman empowerment. It's, it's a, a true walk that you do with – how you model that and who you hire and y'all click on all cylinders. And mm -hmm. I can see that in not only the awards, but just who you have on, on your damn team. It's just all women. So Aww, thank you, you for saying you, that. Well, I wish you could have seen me when I went to your website the first time, but if you are going to be a, a client, I'm going to have to come and visit you in Pennsylvania. Is that right? Yes, it would be an absolute honor to have you. I would like introduce and, you to our whole team and it would be a, Thing. It would be amazing. Absolutely amazing. I would look so forward to it. 
thank you much for your time. And oh, uh, thank you for allowing me to be a part of your show and, and sharing the, the story. I'm not used to podcasts, so this this is something you, that I might be doing again. You did great. And actually, I would love to just put it out there that I want to bring you back. I want to hear you share more of the experiences that you've had through Care Paths as you get more clients and as you watch patients succeed, we definitely have to talk about it again. For all my listeners, this has been such a special episode for me. Please share it. You never know who you will touch by sharing a story like Kermit's. We all need to hear it. We all need to be inspired and feel hopeful and moved to action by our grief and our loss. I think you know, the more people that do that, the better off we will be. If you have a story like Kermit's or even, you know, not like this, but, you know, of a way that we could do better, please email me. I want to hear from you, Christine at ChristineMeyerMD.com. Thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare.